Welcome to the show, people. The crossover. I'm Dan Clark, joined as always by my good friend Sean Keating. And welcome to the show today. We are excited to bring you our first guest in a while. Eric Godsey comes to us um, a little unexpected and uh, has a uh, background in cognitive psychology. We talked to him today about... um, the story we tell ourselves. We talk to them about suffering that we all go through. And when we get to the point where we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, how do we get enlightened? How do we figure out um, the next steps in life to live our best version of ourself? Eric talks about a relationship that he was in for four years that um, sent him into a deep depression and how he came out of that with journaling and some really um, impressive strategies. And now in his late 20s, Eric resides in Austin. He's got a business in which he coaches people. He's got an online course. He has a podcast called The Myths That Make Us. He's been on uh, Marcus Aubrey's podcast numerous times and is uh, just really dropping a lot of knowledge and I think really hits uh, our listening audience very, very well. And uh, we wouldn't have got Eric on the show unless it wasn't for Dan throwing some darts. Yeah, this is uh, a new experience, right, running this podcast. But I remember listening to to Eric back on uh, Aubrey Marcus's podcast a while back, and yeah, his message just really stuck out to me as you know a voice that definitely was worth listening to, and a voice that I would gladly spread. To other people and so I, I took a shot sent an email off and um yeah he answered the email and uh the rest they say is history um yeah really really unique mind has a lot of good uh psychological um experience under his belt um he's got a, a newsletter as well from his website ericgodsey.com every friday he sends out some good golden nuggets. Um, but if you're interested in more from him, definitely check out his appearances on the Aubrey Marcus podcast. And then uh, the myths that make us is also his podcast that just reached a hundred thousand downloads. Um, big accomplishment there. So somebody in the same uh, field of work as us. So I was uh, really appreciative of, of his time. And uh, I really hope that, you enjoy our conversation with Eric Godsey. First question for me is going to be just, um, I'd say about a year and a half ago, uh, I'm a basketball coach and um, have gotten big into what's called transformational coaching. And and so there's been a lot of things about emotional intelligence and um, trying to, you know, coach the whole athlete. And at a conference I was at about a year and a half ago um, with a, a great group of dudes, um, the whole story we tell ourselves from Brene Brown, like her Netflix thing, they played an excerpt. And that really um, struck a chord with me. And um, ever since, I've been doing um, quite a bit of reading and just studying that. And it's really made a lot of sense to me. And it's really been at the forefront of my brain. And when Dan um, talked about that you were willing to join us and I saw and listened and read about you, you've kind of basically said that you came to this realization that the story we tell ourselves is one of the main things that you want to make people aware of and think is one of the keys to life. So I know it's kind of a big question, but if you could just tell our listeners, like basically how did you get to that point? Yeah, man. So um, I, because my mom had pretty severe depression as a child and I unconsciously thought that I was responsible for healing her, that got me into psychology when I was very young. And um, when I went to college, I wanted to get a degree in philosophy because I, because I found that the only way to have power in my life um, where I could be aggressive and not be critiqued for being aggressive was to argue with people about ideas. And so I thought, you know, I should go get a degree in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And the school that I went to didn't offer a philosophy degree. So I got a degree in cognitive psychology, which is about how the brain processes information. 
and slowly through uh, taking psychedelics in college and then reading all my textbooks um, and then starting to kind of read some of the philosophers that I was still interested in, I kept seeing the same core idea everywhere, which is uh, what is the story that people are telling themselves about the situation? And the stat is, it's something like we have a, between 40 and 60,000 thoughts a day. And we're probably conscious of 150 of them. And it's something like 80% of them are recursive, recurring, and negative. And so we just have this constant chatter going on in the back of our mind um, that it is, and there are scientific studies that show this, that actually dictate what we notice in the environment. Like people say, you create your reality, and it's kind of a cliche, but it's technically true that um, I'm not sure if you guys have seen the study, but there's what's called the basketball pass study. And I, that might actually not be the actual name for it, but you have two groups of people who have to pass a basketball back and forth and you're told to count how many passes are made. And then halfway through the video, a human in an right. ape suit walks into the middle and starts dancing and then walks <laughs> out and more than half of the people don't see the ape. And that's the most clear example that I've seen that what you are looking for, which is determined by your stories, which are mostly unconscious and most of the time because of the way that we've been programmed by evolution, we only look at what's not working because we've evolved to conserve energy and anything that's working doesn't need to be fixed, so we don't need to give attention to it. So our default mode is pay attention to all the shit that's not working and repeat it to yourself over and over and over again until you don't recognize how beautiful your life is. And uh, for me, the big the big like, oh my God moment was when my first major relationship ended, we had been together for about four years. Um, uh, when we broke up, I had a severe back spasm where I couldn't walk for a couple of days. And I just happened to buy the book, The Artist's Way for the first time. And that's a book about journaling. And I started to journal based off of the prompts in that book. And I recognized at 23, I had not had a single moment in my life where I had gotten still and I had been honest with myself about the stories that I tell myself about the world and beginning to journal and creating an intentional space in my life where I actually allowed myself to admit things that I was afraid or ashamed or felt guilt for feeling, I actually began to allow myself to articulate those to myself which gave me the first opportunity in my motherfucking life to actually have honest conversations with other people. And once I started having honest conversations with other people, I lost all my friends, lost all my <laughs> friends. I shed all of the people that I did addictive behaviors to avoid how I feel with. And that's what we call our first round of friends most of the time. And it eventually became this like faith claim that I now share with everybody that I talk to that I find resonates with everybody that I talk to. And it's, if you speak and act the truth in love, whatever happens is the best possible thing that can happen. And that's kind of the ultimate story that I tell myself now. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I've heard that mentioned by, I think Jordan Peterson talks about it too, but the idea of like speaking the truth whenever you possibly can, but like I'm thinking of situations that I've been in where I know that is the case, but there's just this part of me that stops me from actually making that leap to say that thing that, that you know, loses the group of friends. So right. how, do, how, do you get, how do you get the courage to do that or to actually, you know, in the moment, for overcome sure. that obstacle? Uh, suffer for many years until the suffering is so great that you're willing to take the chance. And then once you take the chance, you realize that your life gets better every time that you do it. And once you do it about four times, you realize, Oh my God, this is the fucking way. So suffer forever. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> no. like, yeah. That's I mean, the thing for most people is that people's uncomfortableness with the life that them not speaking the truth has created for them tends to be the thing that finally will get them just to take the leap once and what I have found is as soon as I take the leap, even if it doesn't go the way my ego wants it to go, I have more respect and love for myself. And so I begin to act differently. And it just calls doper and doper things into my life. And now I'm at the point 
or when I hear a truth and I'm afraid of how it's going to play out, I'm just like, fuck, because I know I'm going to do it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like I have to. Right. Yeah. I, I think we, you know, we teach high school kids and, you know, we've started school back up this week and we see these kids and like we're, we're, Dan talks a lot about trying to get these kids on a path and, you know, we talk a lot about the, you know, leading the horse to water and obviously we can't make them drink. And unfortunately, like, I feel that's sometimes part of it and it's hard in our role as educators and coaches to see kids suffering, to see kids focused on the negative, to see kids telling themselves this story. But like you said, like it almost needs to get to this threshold breaking point where enough is enough and like I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, do you have any other advice as you are, you know, we're yeah. kind of talking to a lot of those kids, like what to say to them and what, how to help them? Yep. So there's a couple of things. Um, one of my favorite quotes of all time is what you do speak so loudly. I cannot hear what you say. So the first thing is the two of you just be the dopest fucking versions of yourself that you can possibly be. And they will see like, these teachers are different than all the other teachers. And so lead by example, like really just be motherfucking impeccable with how you show up to your life and they will see that. And the ones who have any chance of being curious right now, they'll listen. So that's one. Two is the best way. So I did a podcast with someone who's been in AA for like 20 years and he says the greatest healers he's ever met are actually sponsors and all the sponsors do is they share the stories of when they failed to the younger people who are going to go try to do the thing. And so if you guys can go through your past and collect the stories of your biggest fuck ups and then use those as teaching moments where you're not telling them anything to do, you're just telling them a story of you tried what they're trying and how it motherfucking exploded <laughs> in your life. And um, they're the most likely to remember those stories if they don't feel like you're trying to change them, but you're simply just sharing where you crashed and burned over and over and over again. And then the third one is um, I have found offering people that I love resources like books and podcasts that they can come to when they are ready, normally when they're alone, when they don't feel like, because in order to take your advice, if it's something they're not doing, they have to be mature enough to admit and to feel the guilt of like, oh, I did something wrong in the face of someone that they see as a mentor or as an adult. But if you offer them a book or a podcast or an online course or whatever, they can come to it when they're ready. They can come to it when they feel safe. And I have found, especially with my family, like, when I tried to give them all of the medicine, they just stopped calling me. But once I started a podcast and I started a website and I shared all my medicine on there, the ones that were ready to come to it came to it and started to change their life and didn't even tell me. Right. And, and I mean, did the others ever come? I mean, does that, or does that just not happen? Or do you just, this keep is one of the hardest things. One of the hardest things for me to accept is that there are people in my family who will likely die before they're willing to face their trauma. And they know that I see it. I've had conversations with them. They know that I'm waiting at the door to open it for them whenever they're ready. But one of the things is you can't make someone change. And the interesting thing is if you see yourself as a coach or a healer, in order to maintain that story, you have to be around people who need healing or need coaching. And that's one of the biggest, like, reframes that I've had to learn is um, I automatically put someone in the position of below me who needs healing or coaching in order for me to play out my story as healer or coach. And um, some people just will not respond to that ever. That is super ridiculous putting it like that because I mean, we live such a cycle, like such a, you know, we live we're going to live our entire life by a school calendar, like every year of our life, you know, and I start a new season and I've got players and I've got, you know, and I've know exactly what you're talking about. There's some players that I just flat out, they wouldn't accept it. I couldn't get through to them. Um, 
and we go through this, but like our, our job, like we have to always go back to like, one of the things I saw you said is like once a week or every once in a while, you're like, why am I alive? Like, like you're journaling about it. Like, why am I here? What's my purpose? And going back to that constantly is it's, it seems so, you know, menial, but we have to constantly do it. Like, can you talk about like why that is so important? Yeah. So uh, a thing that came up in my mind that I want to offer you that I think would be super powerful. Like uh, when I was younger, one of my goals before I started this whole path was like, I'm going to be the greatest basketball coach ever. And it was like one of my early dreams. Um, What I would offer is check out and do some research on initiation rituals. And what I would offer is at the beginning of each season in the, in the preseason, do something non-sports related where they all have to go through something that is really hard and they have to help each other through it, like some type of boot camp. Like I remember my basketball coach, our best season was when the entire preseason, we didn't touch a motherfucking basketball. <laughs> we ran track with the track kids and it sucked, but we all went through this pain together. And then uh, that was the best like season that we had because we were like fuck our coach we're all of our own best friends <laughs> yep. and we're the fucking and we, and we were in great shape also <laughs> i've heard a story where a coach at the beginning of every season he feels into the vibe of the group and he will tell a story to the group the entire year where they represent some type of animal so he did one where like they were a hive of bees one was where they were a pack of wolves and some like humans instinctually understand stories that reflect nature because we've evolved alongside nature for hundreds of thousands of years. And if you can find some kind of story, and I think the third one was that they were a tornado, like the whole group was just one tornado. <laughs> you can find a story to kind of like weave through the whole season. It, it could be really cheesy, but if it really connects and comes from your heart, it could be really powerful. But to answer your question, um, a lot of the research on cognitive psychology comes down to if people feel like what they are doing in the world is meaningful and that they have agency in the world, which means the actions that I take can actually change the world. Those are the most resilient type of people. I would recommend the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. I think that that was a phenomenal book for Mm -hmm. to, to be a coach or a teacher who's trying to instill in children or in teenagers how to be resilient. Um, for me, because I try to do so much, um, I can get lost staring at the bark of a tree, but if I take a step back and write out like, what's my life purpose, I see the forest and I see the mountain that I'm trying to go to, and it just helps me reorient. And a huge part of just keeping my brain running smoothly is to be able to negotiate with the obligations I've made to myself. And sometimes when I rewrite that sentence of what my life purpose is, I feel okay to drop a lot of the shit in my life that I thought was important, but actually isn't. And so it's, it's a constant reframe to help me decide, which the Latin root of decide means to cut away. And if I know what my purpose is, I can cut out the bullshit in my life. And I constantly have to revisit that because I'm always saying yes, because I haven't learned how to say no yet because of childhood shit. <laughs> Which is why you're yeah. on this podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> thankful for that. But Sucker. Yeah. I mean, I, and I've talked to kids. I mean, I've, I've tried to get kids in the habit of, of journaling through my classes. And I've even tried to, you know, do it with them. And I mean, you talked about the artist way being the one that really sold it for you. But yeah. was, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, this must be the case. I'm kind of assuming right now what you shouldn't do. But were there times where, you know, the journal book, was on the shelf for longer than it probably should have been. And it was hard to get back into it. Or was it just sold so well to you through the artist's way that it was just it's journaling bliss ever since? So what it's been is the moment the artist's way came into my life, it was the lowest point in my fucking life. Like I couldn't walk and the love of my life had left. And um, I made like a spiritual commitment to write every day, full three pages in the way that the artist way represents. And it transformed my life so much that it it didn't, it no longer feels like something that I have to do. It feels like something that I get to do. And um, I have had periods where I haven't journaled in a while, but it's, 
because my life was going so smoothly that I didn't feel like I needed to check in. But now it's, it's like an ingrained habit that if my life gets too stressful, I just know if I come back to this, it's going to feel amazing. Um, for kids, again, uh, the invitation is, it comes down to how well can you tell a story? And what a story implies is if you act a specific way, you will get this outcome. Like that's the core of every story. If you act the way this character is acting, you get this outcome. And what I would offer is if the story doesn't get them to journal, you can take that as feedback as I need to learn how to tell the story better. And every season of the schooling dance cycle, you get a new chance to tell that story better and better. And one of the things that I've learned as a coach, and it's what I, it's why humans teach me more than books teach me, is that if you really look at the kids that you're talking to, their body will tell you when you're telling a good story, and their body will tell you when you've just stopped telling a good story. And if you allow their body and the intelligence in their body to reflect back at you where you can hone the story, um, You'll just get better and better. So the invitation would be just continue to allow yourself to cultivate how powerfully you tell that story. And what I find is the best way to tell a story is to be vulnerable and honest about how you have fucked up and then how this practice transforms your life specifically and then go into journaling. Yeah. Amen. Those kids need to hear it. Um, another thing that came up when you're talking about that, that relationship and your low point and where you were feeling, you talked about a, a quote that really stood out to me about like, I was trying to be this person in a relationship for the other person rather than trying to be like the best version of myself and living out my story. And I think it's something a lot of us can relate to being in relationships before. Yeah. Um, I think it's a lot of that the, the listeners that we have can relate to and that we see and we've all seen our buddy go through something like they're trying to please. They're trying to be someone else. I always yeah. reference the Four Agreements book about, you know, don't take things personally and don't make assumptions and those little rules. Um, what's your advice to these people about being in a relationship and what you learned from that. Yeah. So uh, this is one of the biggest lessons of my life. And okay. It is our nature that when we fall in love with someone that we project our fantasy of the ideal woman or the ideal man onto them. Cause the truth is when you meet someone, you don't know who they are. You can't. And the way that our minds function in order for us to even be able to get through life is we have to project assumptions onto them. And there's a, an, an amazing book that I would recommend to anyone listening who um, resonates with this idea about relationships. And it's called We by Robert Johnson. And it's a beautiful Jungian book that maps out this idea that <clears throat> your soul, quote unquote, is going to feel like your ideal other. And if you're unconscious, you will project your soul onto the person that you're in love with. And if you're unconscious, you will seek to be what you think they want in a partner. And that does a couple of things. If you're trying to be who you think they want, you are not being who you truly are. And if you are not being who you truly are, you don't even give them the opportunity to actually love you because you are being something other than what you are. And so in the best case, if it works, You've tricked them. You have to be inauthentic and they're in love with an illusion. That's best case. And worst case is they can feel that you're not being authentic and that's intrinsically unattractive. And then they run away. And then you're in the worst case situation where you're not in truth with yourself and you're not getting what you want. And the only time I've been depressed in my life is when I was seeking to be something other than what my truth was to be chosen by a woman and she wasn't choosing me. And so I felt hopeless. I felt like I had no idea what I was doing with my life. And what is most attractive to the type of people that we want in our life? And we all have this experience when you meet someone who's quote unquote weird hmm. and they're not shy about being weird. Like you, there's something in us that innately respects and admires that because those people are free. And so if you allow yourself to just be authentically what you are, a couple of things happen. 
that's how you learn the most quickly. Because if you're authentic, you get authentic feedback from the world. If you're anything other than authentic, you're getting inauthentic feedback from the world about how to be. And that confuses you. And that leaves you learning the inauthentic, inaccurate lessons about what life is and how to be to be successful. But also, if you are authentic, you give people the opportunity to actually love you. And um, realizing that I needed to be my truth as opposed to who I thought this partner wanted me to be was one of the biggest lessons of my life. Yeah. And that's, I mean, hearing you say that is bringing back some flashbacks of my life, but it's such a, I mean, especially being an adolescent, you know, I mean, obviously now that we're, we're older, we know that, you know, being weird and being yourself is the best thing, but man, for those young kids, I mean, when I heard that from, from girls I would be talking to like, haha, you're weird. That was never, I mean, that was never something I, I put as like a badge of honor in that, yeah. in that time frame of high school. And these, and these kids often, I mean, they're also looking for relationships during this time period. And it's hard to try to convince them that, you know, just get to know yourself, you know, before you jump yeah. into this. And it's, it's a, I mean, that's my constant advice that I'm telling 17 year old boys and girls and they usually don't heed my advice and off they go. Again, stories are powerful. And one of my favorite stories to tell young people, like I have a sister who's 19, who the thing that she is most interested in is just falling in love and explaining to her, um, everyone that I know from high school who, uh, to be frank, had a lot of sex, their lives are not, admirable right now but and i think because a part of it is if you're a teenager and you're getting all the sex you want nothing else in the fucking world matters you're like <laughs> i am god i have everything and all those people that i know from high school who felt fulfilled in relationships they still live in the same town they don't look healthy they're in lives that like i don't regret not being in and everyone that I know who had hard times in high school having the relationships that they wanted most of them have the most interesting lives now and it feels like because it instills this sense of like maybe there's something more to life that is a story that I would share if I was a teacher which is like all of you who don't feel like you're doing a good job in relationships all the most interesting people I know as an adult felt that same way in high school yeah, we just went through the first couple of days of uh, class, and I usually start out my first day like screaming and running into my classroom in a lucha libre mask with the American flag, and <laughs> let's go. And it's just I don't. I'm to the point where I say I don't care. You know, it's not like yeah, but it's hard to get. You know, there's just so much going on in a in an adolescent mind that they're just they're trying to be you know part of that crowd and fit in that trying to convince them that, hey, it's it's good to be in this Lucha Libre mask and running around like a crazy man. Like, you want that for yourself. But, you know, it's sometimes again, it's, it's, a hard to, it's a hard sell. If you can collect stories of people who are like them and then the end of the story is something awesome, like the kids will learn best through telling stories as opposed to you explicitly telling them how they should be or what they should do. And so if you can just make it be a thing in your mind where you're always looking to collect stories that instill and imply the wisdom that you want to tell them directly, that's the best way to get them to listen and to potentially change. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's so many, so many directions I'd go here, but I think one of the things that I'm always interested in talking to somebody um, like yourself that has, has decided to um, pour into other people and help them tell their stories is yeah, you're a human too, and you have a life, and you have struggles, and you have adversities. What what's something you're struggling with in your life, if you don't mind sharing? And just like, no. what's your process of of going through that? And it's such a dichotomy, right? When we're as educators, teachers, in in your role, having people on the podcast, helping others, coaching others, and we're sometimes look to, right, as giving this advice and get, and then when we have issues, we're like, well, I can't, you know, sometimes we feel like we can't have an issue. Like, that's not okay. Like, 
And I've gone through this. I told Dan a lot, like when this pandemic started, like I, I really struggle with a lot of anxiety because I lost my identity as a teacher and a coach and being around these kids. And like, I picked up fishing and I hate fishing. Like, and, and like <laughs> I bought a boat and like, I'm like, I'm trying to find, like figure it out and I'm really struggling. And so I've been pretty open about that. What, what's something for you? Um, because I think it's great for kids to hear um, that not everyone has it all figured out. Yeah, so I, I want to re-articulate how important it is as a teacher and an educator to not act like you're not a human because that teaches the children, oh, I can't trust this person because he's fucking fake. <laughs> and as soon as you admit vulnerably something that's going on in your life, like I remember the teachers that I liked and they were the ones that treated me like a human and acted like a human. Like those were the ones that I, that I loved. Um, and it's also something that I do in my personal, just whatever you would call the thing is that I'm doing publicly is I'm always sharing whatever it is that's most vulnerable for me right now. And for me currently, I'm in a relationship with a woman who, um, I am absolutely in love with, and I know that she's absolutely in love with me, but she has patterns that trigger my insecurities. So um, I got cheated on for the first time a year and a half ago. I'd never been cheated on and it was my biggest fear. Oh my God. And a part of this woman's healing process that I'm with right now is she loves to party. And what's weird is as a man, my relationship to partying was always, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the party to try to have sex. Like I don't just go and dance. That doesn't even make sense to me. And <laughs> One of the biggest things for me to realize with her is that that is not her MO. Her MO is like, I'm going to go have fun with people that I love and dance into the night. And when she goes out, because of my history where I got cheated on, I feel like my partner is out cheating on me in my emotional body. And I have to use all my practices to sit and to look at the parts in me that are going crazy to journal, to exercise, to um, hang out with people that I love that can be like emotional support. And it's really hard because I'm having to retrain my emotional body to trust the woman that I'm in love with. And it's, it's been interesting because in all my relationships before I got cheated on, I was never anxiously attached. So are you guys familiar with attachment styles? Uh, I don't know. I don't no. think so. So, and one of the most amazing things that you can learn to help kids, especially with relationships is what's called attachment styles. And there's all sorts of books on it, but it's, it's been a field of study in psychology for like the last 100 years, but essentially there's three types of attachment styles, which is how we love other people. There's secure, which is about 50% of the population, which is essentially healthy. Then there's anxious and then there's avoidant and then there's anxious avoidant. So there were studies done probably about 40 years ago where they bring a child into a room with the mother and there's a two-way mirror. And then the mother will leave the child in the room with a stranger and then will come back in like 20 minutes. A secure attached child will um, slowly explore the room while the mom is gone. When the mom comes back, the child will be happy that the mom comes back, will come back and like touch her and then go explore again. An anxiously attached child, uh, when the mom leaves, will just cry and cry and cry. And then when the mom comes back, they'll act or they'll like run up to the mom and just hold the mom and won't explore the room. And avoid an attached child. When the mom leaves, the child will um, cry. And then when the mom comes back, the child will act angry at the mom and won't actually go touch her again. Um how that plays out when we're adults is when we feel our partner is not meeting us the way that we want to be met. If we're securely attached, we'll just tell them like, Hey, I feel this. When you do this, can we have some compromise? An anxiously attached person is the needy person. That's always like, like that is just too much in the other person's face and anxiously attached people tend to pair with avoidant attached people because they fit each other's traumas mm -hmm. and an avoidant attachment they fear being uh, consumed by the other person. So they will just continue to avoid and avoid and avoid. Um, 
in my younger years, I was an avoidant attachment style because of the type of relationship I had with my mom. And then once I started to do work on it, I became a secure attached style. And then once I got cheated on, I'm secure until my partner starts to act in ways where I can tell stories that they're retreating. And then now I have to deal with feeling anxious. And my partner used to be anxious. And now her response to, because uh, and so because she was anxious, she was only with avoidant people. And now that she's with someone who's secure, who sometimes is anxious, her thing is she's secure. And then when I get anxious, she gets avoidant. And so <laughs> we're having to learn yeah. how to both do this dance. And we're both conscious and aware enough to articulate that we know that these are parts inside of us that are trying to protect our inner child and that we don't have to act on them. But that's been the biggest struggle for me right now is to be in the most beautiful relationship I've ever been in. But because of the wound that I got a couple of years ago, um, I have to be vulnerable and express when I can feel I'm being anxious, when I can feel she's being <laughs> avoidant. And it's this really interesting dance. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I think important to, you know, just for our listeners and kids to understand like those, those stories, like it's just awesome to share. And like, you know, the kids love to hear like, did you party in high school? Did you do this? You know, they want to know like about our lives and it's hard. And I always tell Dan, like even on this podcast, like, you know, I'm a head coach and you know, I feel like, Oh, should I be doing, you know, should I swear? Should I do this? Should I do that? You know? And it's like getting that point, that point of living the truth and speaking the truth and, I just think it always comes back to, to me. And, and when I read Jordan Peterson's, uh, what is it, 10 rules, 12 rules, and, uh, you know, that whole part about living the truth, man, that is just so, you know, so much of what we talk about is so simple, but so freaking hard to do. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's so hard to do. Just because um, it's simple does not mean it's easy. And one of my favorite quotes is by uh, Nietzsche, the philosopher, and it's, Men muddy the waters so it appears deep. Like people hide behind complexity because they don't want to do the hard thing. Like in almost all of my coaching calls, people will say they don't know what to do about a situation at the beginning of the call. <laughs> and by the end of the call, what we've realized is, oh, you knew before we even talked, but what you meant to say is you're afraid. That is so true. I always say that too. Like you, you know, just yeah. do the next thing. Like, like do you know what, you know what the next step is. It's just, you're not ready to do it. That's gotta be crazy to, to do that over and over again. And, but I love it. Yeah. I like, um, are you guys familiar with internal family systems? It's a psychological model. No, it is fascinating. And all the research that I'm finding is like all the top people have some version of this, but it's essentially, uh, we are not one thing we have a bunch of different characters inside of us. And you right, can okay. see this in people, like people's tone of voice and posture and the way they breathe will change depending on what part is activated inside of them. And like my favorite, like why I never get bored with the coaching thing is because I try to see what their parts are. There's the part that knows, and I, and I, I like to call that the king or the queen. And then there's all these characters around that that are trying to protect like the wounded parts of us that we acquire throughout our life from whatever age where something hard or traumatic happened. And I'll ask them to visualize, like imagine the king is talking to the scared boy and the scared boy is saying, no, if we do that, people will judge us and we'll never be loved. Like, what would you have wanted your dad to say to you if you said that to your dad? And can you imagine the king going up and picking up the boy and giving him that wisdom and then holding his hand while he goes and does the scary thing? And it's just beautiful how, how everyone I've ever worked with, they intuitively understand this. And even people who don't know anything about internal family systems, the way we speak, everyone says like a part of me feels blah, blah, blah. A part of me did this. Right. Also, when people say like, oh, that wasn't me, that's also an example of the, there are parts inside of us. And if you ignore them, when you get triggered, they seize you. And then you do something, you're like, oh, fuck, that wasn't me. No, that was a part of you. And if you can learn, like, if, if you learn how to give them names and you learn to give them like avatars inside of you so you can see them and you learn how to start to speak with them, it's one of the most transformative like approaches or coaching models that I have found to help people 
get out of their own way. Yeah, I've heard. I mean, I've heard Dr. Peterson talk about like you know the king and you know the king in charge, but just I've only heard the idea of being aware of who's in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. And I've never really taken that idea deeper, to where you know you give them names and you you know explore the conversations between them because you know I'm I'm constantly at, at battle with myself, and I don't know yep. exactly you know <laughs> who those things are, but I'm like I, yeah. you know part of me knows what's right and what what's actually going on or the truth but then a part of me i don't know is my ego or whatever you know macho man dandy savage or something like that but yeah a book that i would recommend to both of you is called king warrior magician lover and it is one of the best books that i've ever read for how to understand my own psyche and then at the end of that book without them calling it internal family systems and again like why i love this is i see it everywhere but everyone calls it her own term but he teaches you how to begin to journal in a way where you talk to these different archetypes inside of you. Like the idea of the book is that there's four major archetypes in the mature male psyche. And it's the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. And each of them have a shadow side if you don't take care of them. And the book teaches you what they look like, how you go about understanding how they behave. And then the end of the book teaches you how to talk to them. I love it. That's And there's always something that like, you can always dive down a different hole, and this is this seems like a good for one the rest to dive of your down. Life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, I'll do this one, and then I'll I'll have to hit the road. But um, so one of the things I I tell my students that I I say, you know, if there's nothing else I ever can teach you, like the most important thing that I'm trying to get across to you is that if you ever want to figure out, you know, your calling in life, anything big, you're gonna have to take some time. You're going to have to sit by yourself. You're going to have to put your damn phone away. You're going to have to think, write, and just explore yourself. And and for me, that didn't happen. Um, my story is like my dad was a doctor and like I felt that's what I had to do. And I got to my end of my bachelor's and I was like, well, I won't be a doctor, but I'll be a dentist because that'll suffice him. And I can still work four days a week and have a lake place and be a baller and it'll be great. And then I realized uh, I, I wasn't quite good enough to get a dental school. I go to grad school and in graduate school doing my master's for microbiology, I had time to think. And I grabbed this book called What Color Is Your Parachute? And I started to figure out myself and I started to explore. And 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 that's how I um, decided that, hey, my calling is, is to work with young people and, and figure it out. And so that's the story I share with my kids. And is that is that the best advice? And I know you talked about like, sometimes you just got to suffer to a point where you just over it. But like, what would you do to expand upon that with what we're telling like these 17 to 25 year olds? Absolutely. Um, The first thing that I would offer is the story of the top five regrets of the dying. Um, I don't know all five off the top of my head, but if you guys go and you find those top five and you share that story, Um, that will illuminate so deeply how not to live your life. And the number one regret of the dying is I wish I had worked less and spent time with with my loved ones more. Um, But if you share that story, the top five regrets of the dying, that will give people clear guideposts about how not to be. And then the question is, and this is how I would frame it to kids. um, If, whatever your parents expect you to be, that is very likely not your calling ever, period. And one of the biggest challenges in your life is going to be- Where were you 20 years ago? (laughs) One of the biggest challenges of your life will be when you can feel that your call is something that your parents don't actually want for you. And then you have to choose it or- you don't choose it and you do what your parents want for you and then you have a midlife crisis. But there are a couple of core questions that I offer people that I think really hit this home. What did you want, what were you naturally attracted to as a child before anyone had to teach you what you should be attracted to? That's question number one. Question number two is what are things that give you flow? And you have to teach kids what flow is. And flow is when you lose your sense of self and your sense of time doing an activity deeply that's intrinsically meaningful to you. Write down the top things that give you flow. Number three is, if money didn't matter and you knew you would be successful, 
and you didn't care about what other people thought about what you were doing, what are the things that you would do with your life? List those things out. And the last one is, what is the biggest problem in the world that you feel called to try to improve? And if you write those four clusters down, you'll start to see that there's something in the middle where you can weave all of those together. And if you can find out what that thing is, and you can find out how to do it in a way where you provide value to the world, because if you provide value to the world, you will make money. You just got a cheat code to life. And then the last thing that I would offer is, y'all, you are going to die. Everything that you do will eventually be forgotten. So there is no immortality. What could you do with this one precious life that you have that would genuinely be enjoyable to you that would also improve the world even 1%? Yeah, and that's that's, that's, that's usually what's that's missing awesome, from uh, our college readiness uh, classes that they make us teach. <laughs> you know, that's how it should start. Like, hey, everyone, you will die. Let's yes. go. Here we go. That's yeah. not a core yeah. standard, though. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the most logical thing. Uh, um, I got to dip out, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Dan will finish it up. And, man, I'm super thankful that you were here to gather with us today. And I learned a ton. So really appreciate it, Eric. Absolutely. And I deeply appreciate what you two are doing in the world. Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, I mean, I enjoy it. I know Sean enjoys it some days and has his moments <laughs> others, but I mean, as we all do, I mean, there's probably areas. I've got a lot of inner dialogue. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, areas of, you know, our profession or our life that, you know, we're always burning off that dead wood. And I mean, even just this conversation right now with you, like I could, I can feel some some dead wood, you know, starting to flame up. And so, yeah. what are what are some things for you that I mean, since you've started your you know this your podcast journey, or even you know since your time at on it, like what are some ideas that have really morphed and evolved, and some that have been just chopped off completely? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I have a stutter. And one of my biggest stories growing up is that whatever I would do in the world, I would do it behind the scenes. I would never be speaking in front of a camera. I would never be speaking in front of a group of people because I was afraid. And when I started working at Onnit, uh, I started to, sh like one of my big things is I interpret dreams. And I started interpreting the dreams for people close to Aubrey and it started to really change their lives. And then they told him like, dude, that guy answering your emails, he's, he's, he's fucking special. You should go talk to him. And then once he talked to me, he asked me to come on the podcast. I was terrified, but I did it. And then once I went on a couple of the podcasts with him, when he started his mastermind, he told me, he didn't ask me, he told me, you're going to be one of the coaches. And I'm 10 years younger than all the other coaches. And the people in the group are like the most baller of ballers. And I was like, who the fuck am I to teach these people anything? And when we had our first in-person event, I had to teach a workshop. I was terrified. But then the moment I did the workshop and I felt how powerful it is to be in person with people and to speak with your voice at their face and to receive the information from their body reflected back at you, I knew I can't hide. I have to be in front of people. I have to speak. And that's been one of the biggest transformations, like one of the biggest pieces of dead wood that has been burnt off of me. That's been one. And what's wild is the thing that I get complimented the most on is how I speak. And it was the thing that I was the most afraid of most of my life. And so I think that where our wounds are, if we face them and integrate them is actually where we get our greatest gifts that we can give other people. Another big piece of wood that got burnt off is I believed that I have to work every day, all day, in order to be worthy of my blessings and the life that I have. And a lot of the people around me have consistently been telling me, like, no, you can relax. You can come out with us sometimes and do wild, crazy shit, and you're still a good person. You're still worthy of the blessings that you have. And that's been a huge transformation for me. And the third one is uh, my dad was not active in my life growing up. 
and my parents got a divorce when I was 10 and then he left. And whenever I would act aggressively, my mom, and it's not her fault, but she would say, you're being just like your dad. And that was never used as a compliment. And so I instilled in me this idea of basically I was a non-masculine man that was very cerebral. But then once I started to work at on it and I started to be around people like Kyle Kingsbury and Aubrey Marcus, I started to see there's a whole realm of masculinity that I didn't allow myself to connect to because I was ashamed for it because of the model that I had growing up. And <clears throat> I've learned now how to be aggressive consciously. I've learned how to, um, I've, I've learned how to be a warrior and a wild man in a way consciously that women are deeply attracted to, men respect, and that I feel more powerful. And those are three huge transformations that have happened for me since I started working at on it about three years ago. And it sounds like, I mean, most of those are driven by the fact that you're surrounded by, you know, a tribe of you know, like-minded or, you know, positive role models or positive peers yep. to help you develop that. Yep. And, and, and I guess that's another big struggle that a lot of kids have is, you know, finding that correct group of people that's going to push you the farthest and make you the best version of yourself. And I mean, speaking from personal experience, it's, uh, you know, you, you want to please, like if you're a pleaser, you know, you're going to want to be doing what everybody else wants to do. And you're going to be avoiding, you know, that, that difficulty or positive growth. So how do you, or what do you suggest to people or young people as to how to cultivate that tribe or to, you know, yeah. find it? Cause I mean, yep. you found it and that, that was a, a, you know, a key. Yeah. That's a great question. So, <clears throat> and this is one of the most common questions that come up in the mastermind that I'm in. And, you know, these are grown adults asking the same question and it comes down to, your default tribe will very likely be people that you did not choose who have the same coping patterns that you have and everyone is playing small and everyone is hiding from their truth. And the moment you begin to be authentic, you will very likely shed most of them and you will have a period in your life that could last years where you're going to feel alone. But if you are authentic, and there's all these great quotes that I can't remember off the top of my head that say the same idea that if you are authentic and honest in yourself, you will draw to you the tribe that you are meant to be a part of. And so step one is cultivate slowly the courage to be authentic. And then step two is one of the powers of social media is you can go find the people that you admire who are being in the world in a way that you admire and begin to follow them. Go comment on everything that they do. Read the comments of the other people that comment on what they do. Become a part of that digital community and kids can do this now. Like they're already fucking addicted to their phone. Find the people that you admire. Go find their online communities and go engage everywhere consistently as often as you can in the communities that you can afford to be in because some of those people have like you have to pay to be in whatever, but have an idea and begin to aim at the type of tribe you want. And that's one of the powers of social media that we've never had before. And then walk in faith that if you continue to interact with those tribes online, you will learn every day more and more about how to be. And if you start to express the ideas that are naturally interesting to you, you will either bring that out of the people around you or you will find people when you start to do new things that resonate with you and you will start to attract your true tribe. Like when I first started waking up, which just means I started being authentic, I lost almost all of my friends, but they weren't really my friends. They right. were my addict partners. <laughs> and then I slowly, one by one, like maybe for six to eight months, I didn't really feel connected to anyone. And then I found one true friend who is still one of my best friends today. And then once I found her, there were three or four that slowly came in because they were friends with her. And then I found more and more. And now I'm drenched in amazing connections because I've continued to walk in this way for seven or eight years now. You know, it's funny. Like I'm, I'm asking these questions like, you know, all these kids want to know this, but in, I'm thinking right now, I'm like in reality, 
100%. It's just me wanting to know it, you know, Mm -hmm. for myself, I feel like I'm like, I'm doing this trick of like, well, how am I going to bring this message to kids? But I feel like, you know, I'm the biggest kid that probably needs this. Um, and I, and you met, you mentioned that tribe and, and kind of cultivating it one by one. And that's, I mean, I feel like that's kind of what this podcast has done for, for me and Sean is just this pandemic kicked off and, he walked in and said, let's do a podcast. And we had never really been very close until, you know, we've had some of these, you know, deep conversations and tried to figure out, you know, some new ideas moving forward and developing. Absolutely. The, the beautiful thing about a podcast, man, is you are putting out a beacon of your authentic truth. And that maximizes the chance of the people who are going to hear it and resonate with it. Like starting my podcast was one of the most important things I've ever done because it, it transformed how I speak. Mm. It transformed how I listen. It transformed how I ask questions. Like I now feel comfortable talking with any type of person as long as they're not physically trying to attack me (laughs) because I know how to listen and I know how to ask questions and it's transformed the way that I interact with people. But then also what it does is like, there are now thousands of people who I haven't met who completely resonate with my truth that if I ever see in person, we are going to connect right away. And the podcast, like one of the things that I share with people in the coaching program is you never know who's listening when you share your stuff online. And even if you only have a hundred followers, there's a couple of people who always saw you in high school and you may not even realize that they saw you, but they're listening to everything that you share. Whenever you share anything authentic, you have a chance of changing one of their lives. And now that you've started this podcast, that beacon is just larger and louder. And what I would invite you is like any teacher at the school that you resonate with at all, ask them to come on the podcast. And that'd be a great way to start to deepen the relationships because the teachers that I disliked the most were the ones who so obviously had so much fucking shit wrong in their life. And they <laughs> wouldn't admit a single goddamn thing. And then they would use their little iota of power at school to try to dominate other people because they felt insecure in their life. Everyone has an inner child. And I think that the offering of community that's deeper than just we're both teachers is a great way to just improve the quality of the school. Yeah, no, I, I agree because, I mean, it's hard to do sometimes because those types of people still exist within For schools. Sure. And, you know, <laughs> even if, if they heard us, you know, even if they heard half the things or, or ideas that we even ponder on this podcast, they would just wave it off as bullshit and, you know, like, look at these jackasses, you know. Um, and I'm just happy to, I'm just happy to have one, really, to, to yeah, bounce ideas sure. off of. Um, and you, I mean, you... I mean, I feel like your experience in the fellowship program, um, that's, I mean, that's your version of your, your kind of your teaching journey, right? I mean, what are some of the, the best ways you found that really connects with people when you're in that, you know, person to person space besides, I mean, obviously the stories, the collection of that and, and telling those in a, in a meaningful way, but, but what else? Yeah. So, so the first thing is everyone's insecure about something. And if you can approach them as a human who also has insecurities and you can admit those insecurities quickly, uh, people can feel safe. Um, Another big thing is gentle eye contact is a game changer. Um, I didn't realize how intense my eye contact was until I started to get feedback from people in the group. But if, if you can genuinely look someone in the eye you can convey to them that they're safe and that you're safe and learning how to listen to people, like just genuinely letting people tell you whatever is happening. That also helps people feel safe. And the big thing for me and what I have found for all of the coaches is get people in person and then give them something to do that is vulnerable and then give them a a space to integrate afterwards And then the community starts to heal itself. Like really the biggest thing that I have found through doing the fit for service program is the coaches are not as important as we think we are. 
really what we do is we set the container and then if people feel safe in the container, they start to heal each other in ways that we don't even see, that we can't even comprehend. That is actually the true magic of the group. So like we offer our workshops, we do our Q and A's, we do our lives, whatever. And we set the tone for being vulnerable and being honest and being authentic. But then it's about, can you create a space where these people can get together and then they heal each other? Right. I mean, is that, do you think that's applicable? I mean, do you think that would be something that would work on a school level? I mean, I don't know how it works in like a math class, but I know in like a history class, I feel like that's a possibility, you know? 100%. Especially in a history class. Like what you could do is you could use when you start to study a new like culture is go find what one of their initiation rituals were and do some approved sanctioned <laughs> version where you put the group through an experience. Mm -hmm. So the big thing, and I think that this actually goes back to your previous question is give people the opportunity to go through experiential practices as opposed to just lectures or whatever. Um, a really powerful thing that I do for almost all of my workshops is I make people eye gaze. And so I make people get into pairs of twos. I pick a song five or six minutes and the goal is or the instructions are just look at your partner's left eye for five minutes everyone cries every time and people feel like they just saw god in the other person and that could actually be a super powerful uh in like every friday <clears throat> you have to eye gaze with someone you don't know for five minutes like that alone could be a transformative <laughs> experience. Um, another is, again, like uh, even if it was a math class, like it's, it's not even about math. It's about the fact that we're a class. Right. And so once a week to just take 10 minutes and do some type of experiential practice, like maybe make everyone own together for five minutes. And that will change everyone's body. Like these kids are so not used. Yeah to having experiences that's guided by a teacher that changes the way they feel in their body. So collective oming could be one. One could be um, you have some, like you have the whole class do a thing where the first person will say a, like a, a phrase and whatever the word ends in, the person after them has to rhyme with that last word. And you just make the whole class do that and everyone fucking cracks up and laughs and it just really kind of gets out the jitters. So experiences are something that you can do in any class because a class is like a small tribe. Right. And I, I mean, I'm thinking back, I had a kind of experimental class where I was able to, you know, take kids into, there's a place in Minnesota where we're at called the Boundary Waters where it's just like, you know, thousands of acres of wilderness and we took them I took them out there and we just we portaged and canoed and like it was difficult and yeah that's that group always comes back and shares that you know that was so meaningful but you're right it's, it doesn't have to be something where you know it's just a trek into you know the wilderness by about 10 miles it can just be something as simple as the ohm or the eye stare um yeah that's great that's great advice yeah, and the last one that pops up is you can make everyone take 10 deep, slow breaths together. Mm. Like, even that will state change everyone in the room. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because, you know, when you first start to to uh, put those things out there for a class, it's funny the reactions you get, but they do, they will, they will go along for the ride with you for the most part. Especially if you open up how you show up as being weird. Right. You no, know, like the fact that you show up the way that you show up, like they're going to be more likely to be like, oh, this is just the weird guy. There you go. <laughs> yeah, they know they know that by this point. But um, well, I mean, I don't I I really enjoyed listening to to you, you know, give me some great knowledge. I feel like it's more of a coaching session more than a <laughs> podcast. But I mean, I'm sure someone will be able to get something out of it. Um, yeah. But to wrap up, what is you know, we talk a lot about on this show, whatever research we're kind of stumbling across and how it's impacting our life and how we're applying it. So what is something, you know, that you're most recently you've tripped over 
as far as like research goes that has really blown your mind and kind of, you know, shifted your perspective or really changed your view on something? Yeah. So the big thing recently has been research on trauma. Um, I'm currently reading the book, How the Body Keeps the Score. Um, It has like 12,000 reviews on Amazon, which is the most I've ever seen. It's incredible. But it's a book about how how trauma changes the brain and how you can heal trauma and how you can see when someone has trauma because it's visceral on their body. Like if you have kids in your class who are like really hunched over and just like depressed into themselves, they likely have gone through severe trauma in their childhood. And one of the big game changers for me is that acute trauma can't be processed through language. And that's a big like, oh, wow, you know, because I'm so big on stories. Mm-hmm. And so there are specific techniques that you can do to help people process trauma that can't be put into language. And that's a huge addition to my life's work, which is to, you know, create the most adaptive psychological system for healing people. Um, and so that's kind of been the newest, most interesting thing that I've stumbled upon. And just to give some resources, there's a thing called EMDR, which is called um, eye movement desensitization desentis- and reprocessing. And essentially, you make someone's eye track your finger and they move their eyes back and forth. And so their eyes start to do the same type of eye movement that you do when you're in REM sleep. And the thing about REM sleep is that that's where you process information into your long-term memory and you can induce that same type of processing visual data consciously by making people do that eye movement. And the studies on EMDR there, it's dramatically more effective than any of the interventions that we have that don't use MDMA, which is its own thing. It's the most effective non-MDMA intervention that we have for treating PTSD. And essentially what you do is you ask people to recall the traumatic experience and you just have them track your finger and then you give them really gentle prompts when you can see that they're not breathing or when they get like afraid or rigid and like eight sessions of EMDR can improve people's PTSD to the point where they don't even score as having PTSD on the scale that we currently have. The other one is yoga. So a thing about trauma is that one of the ways that people protect themselves from trauma is they will unconsciously numb parts of their body because to feel that part of their body brings back the trauma experience. And if you teach people how to do yoga in a specific way, you can help them feel their body again. And they will actually like weep in the middle of yoga classes as a part of their body starts to come back online that was associated with the trauma. And then the third one is using internal family systems, which is to help people connect to like the inner wounded child and to teach them how to recognize what their coping patterns are to protect themselves from feeling the inner, the inner wounded child and then helping them integrate those and bring them back into awareness. And that's kind of been the big thing that I've stumbled upon recently. Man, this has been awesome. I appreciate all the, all the new knowledge you've brought into my life and uh, my (laughs) listeners lives, even though I've, you know, heard you say a lot over the, over the last few years or so, but um, thanks for coming on. I can't thank you enough. Um, My pleasure. means a lot. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Yeah, we're we're trying to do something. <laughs> I see it. All right, Eric. Well, take care.